Welcome to the Frankly Judaic Podcast, a production of the Jean and Samuel Frankel Center for Judaic Studies at the University of Michigan. I'm Jeffrey Weidlinger, the director of the center. This podcast explores some of the newest research being conducted at the University of Michigan in Judaic Studies. And here's your host, Jeremy Shear. If you grew up in the late to mid-1960s, 70s, or 80s, you might remember the movement to free Soviet Jewry. Freedom satyrs, symbolic empty chairs in the bima during bar and bat mitzvahs, protests and marches in Washington, D.C., all were part of the decades-long campaign to persuade Soviet leaders to allow Jews to emigrate to Israel, the United States, or wherever else they might choose to relocate and live freely as Jews. For Shaul Kellner, an associate professor of sociology and Jewish studies at Vanderbilt University, and a fellow at the Frankel Institute for Advanced Jewish Studies at the University of Michigan, the movement also enabled a type of Jewish identity that no longer exists. It created a moment in time when there was a very special type of American Judaism and American Jewish practice that was a result of this movement. And when the movement stopped mobilizing people, the things that it created really very quickly became history. So looking at how the movement created a type of Jewishness for that very particular moment in American Jewish life is fascinating to me. Spurred by the plight of Soviet Jews, who were effectively barred from practicing Judaism by the Soviet state and not allowed to emigrate, and inspired by the civil rights movement, the anti-Vietnam War movement, and other social movements of the day, the effort to free Soviet Jews officially began in the early 1960s. Leaders of the movement in the United States made strategic use of religion and Jewish ritual. And what the activists very quickly realized or decided was if you want to find American Jews and mobilize them as Jews, you can look to the synagogues. You can look to the times when they're already engaged in Jewish behaviors. Um, So you look to holiday times. You look to their life cycle events like bar mitzvah, bat mitzvah. And you find ways to tie the cause to those particular moments. So movement organizers very deliberately created and revised rituals meant to draw attention to the cause. For example, the Passover Seder. The most popular Jewish holiday observance has long been the Passover Seder. And if you want to find a time to mobilize American Jews when they're gathered with other Jews and thinking about Jewish stuff, Passover Seder is a great time to do it. They created holiday rituals around the Passover Seder to use the symbols of the Seder to remind people about the plight of Soviet Jews. And the one that became most well-known is called the Matzah of Hope. This was a special reading that was inserted into the Passover Haggadah in the mid-1960s. The reading stated that, We raise this matzah on behalf of our brothers and sisters, the Jews of the Soviet Union, who are not free to learn of their heritage and pass it on. Interestingly, Kellner notes, the ritual did not initially mention the fact that Soviet Jews were not free to leave, an odd omission given the Passover Seder's focus on the exodus from bondage in Egypt. They said they weren't free to learn their heritage, they weren't free to to teach their children, they weren't free to train their rabbis, they weren't free to actually bake matzah to celebrate Passover. But this thing that everyone knew, that they also were not being let out, the activists refused to say, because at that time... Soviet Jews themselves had not yet begun openly calling for emigration rights, and there was a debate within the American movement as to whether 
the movement should be advocating for what they thought was possible, which were cultural rights for Jews in the Soviet Union, versus what they thought at the time would be impossible, which was getting the Soviet Union to open their gates. Factions within the movement debated whether or not to call for open emigration for Soviet Jews, an argument resolved in the late 1960s when Soviet Jews themselves began demanding the right to leave. Movement leaders soon followed suit, revising ritual readings to support the demand. Alongside rituals such as the Matzah of Hope, movement activists also strategically organized seders in public spaces sure to generate attention. For example, in front of Soviet diplomatic offices. Because here, what they were essentially doing was transforming the seder into a symbol of protest. If you think about the audiences who they were trying to communicate to, there were multiple audiences, and the seder had a number of different meanings. It communicated different things to different audiences. So if you were trying to get on television to raise awareness among the broader American public, the seder looks Jewish. You have people who are dressed up in Jewish garb. The rabbis were wearing taluses and yarmulkes, and they were lifting matzahs. Even if people didn't know exactly what these symbols were, they were visibly recognizable as Jewish symbols, and they made for good television. So they could communicate to people who really didn't know that much that this is a Jewish religious cause. Seder leaders even went so far as to slip matzah beneath the gates of the Soviet embassy. They were physically invading Soviet space with matzah, with other Jewish symbols. Sometimes they would ship crates of matzah and haggadahs to the consulates to put this stuff onto Soviet space. They had no expectation that this would actually get to Soviet Jews, but it transformed these home symbols into something that they were not used for before and that they haven't been used for since. So it really was a very particular way of acting Jewishly that repurposed old symbols for a new cause. Other Jewish holidays, including Rosh Hashanah, Hanukkah, Shavuot, the fast of Tisha B'Av, and Purim, were likewise appropriated to serve the movement's aim of calling attention to the cause of freeing Soviet Jews. Perhaps the most well-known and one of the most effective practices was Bar and Bat Mitzvah twinning, where Jewish youth were paired with Soviet Jewish boys and girls of Bar and Bat Mitzvah age who were not able to experience the coming-of-age ritual often symbolized by an empty chair meant for the absent Soviet Jewish bar and bat mitzvah, twinning was a powerful way to engage regular American Jews who may otherwise not have been prone to take action. If you think about who is reached by that, it's not just the bar mitzvah boy and bat mitzvah girl and their families. It's every person who attended a bar or bat mitzvah for this 10-15 year period, they were experiencing this. And then after having tried to make some type of contact with Soviet with, with their Soviet Jewish twin, to learn something about the plight of the refuseniks, they would speak about it from the pulpit as part of their bar bat mitzvah speech. Often, the, the, often the, the program booklets that people would create had something about the family who they were twinning with. There was a lot of DIY art that drew uh, Jews and hammers and sickles and prison bars and the like. It really was an opportunity for people to get creative artistically in terms of public speaking. And it got young American Jews not just learning about the movement, but speaking publicly about the movement. And it engaged them that way. Beyond marshalling and repurposing Jewish ritual, 
Activists also organized reconnaissance missions, sending American Jews to the Soviet Union to clandestinely meet with refuseniks to lend moral support, deliver food, medicine, and other supplies, and to report back on their situation. Tourists were reporting back to the activists what they had seen and what they had learned when they met with the refuseniks, and the organizations asked them, write up a report of your trip. There are over a thousand of these trip reports that survive in the archives, and when you look at them, one of the things that becomes immediately apparent is that in addition to providing the details that would actually be helpful to the Soviet Jewry organizations, the travelers were writing themselves into stories that read a lot like James Bond or John le Carré. They talked a lot about the cat and mouse games that they played with the KGB. Their hotel rooms were bugged. They were being followed. Some people were arrested. Some people were expelled. They were taught by the Soviet Jewry organizations how to write addresses in code. Soviet Jewry activists, though, hated this cloak-and-dagger approach for several reasons. One was that, from the point of view of the activists, this is not about you, the traveler. This is about helping Soviet Jews. And if you're getting focused on, on spy games, you're losing focus on what is really important here. That was one. Two was that this line of, this, this channel of communication between America and the Refuseniks was an important one, and they did not want potential travelers to be scared away. You come back and you tell spy stories, you're going to make it seem too dangerous. People aren't going to want to go. Whenever the press picked up the story of the travelers going in, they would invariably frame it as a spy story. And it was just as common for there to be some type of a letter to the editor in response from the activists saying, that's nonsense. This is not about spying. This is about helping people in need. Whether or to what extent the Soviet Jewry movement played a role in the eventual exodus of many Soviet Jews is an open question among scholars. Kellner believes that the movement did, in fact, serve an important purpose. Already in the late 60s and early 1970s, you see the Soviet Union responding to pressure from the West, from these civilian activists, and they opened up the gates, and what had been a trickle of a few hundred people emigrating a year became a flow of in the tens of thousands. The movement also put the issue of human rights on the Cold War agenda, and to the extent that that was part of the pressure that led to the collapse of the Soviet Union, among all the other things that did, I think it could have played a role in that sense. Point three is that the movement laid the legal and political groundwork for absorbing a mass emigration once the gates opened. And there's no guarantee that when the Soviet Union collapsed that anyone who wanted to leave would be able to leave, and that anyone who was able to leave would be able to find a place to go. I'm in the camp that says that this movement actually succeeded in accomplishing what it set out to accomplish, and that had this movement not been around, I certainly can't imagine what type of pressure would have opened up the gates in the 1970s for that first wave of immigration, and I have no idea how a groundwork for absorbing an immigration would have been in place so that when the Soviet Union collapsed, a mass emigration could happen with the speed in which it did happen. 
The Soviet Jewry movement trained a generation of American Jews to organize and employ religious symbols and ritual for political ends, and, Kellner says, remains unique for bringing together the timeless and the timely in a very rare combination. In terms of the timeless, it looked to core Jewish narrative, and it really did frame the plight of Soviet Jews as the plight of the ancient Israelites in Egypt awaiting a modern-day exodus. And by engaging Jews, not just in saying it, but engaging Jews in rituals that performed that belief, it reactivated for American Jews a sense that their fundamental core religious narrative was still true. The second piece was in the way that it was timely. This was not just any cause, and the villain in this campaign was not just any villain. It was the rival superpower in the Cold War, which was the defining geopolitical conflict of the latter half of the 20th century. This movement was right at the center, and it was a Cold War movement. And in bringing together the timeless and the timely, in that way, the movement brought together for American Jews the two aspects of their identity, their Jewishness and their Americanness. Thanks for listening to the Frankly Judaic podcast a production of the Frankel Center for Judaic Studies at the University of Michigan.